She thumps a cane and drinks champagne She's formidable and judgmental But we can guarantee That she's a quintessential lady D But recognizes great potential What would Danbury do? Welcome to What Would Danbury Do? Your guide to Julia Quinn's Bridgerton series from A to B. After the emotional closing scene of episode three, tensions are climbing even higher in the Bridgerton universe. All of our faves are back together as a ton descends on Aubrey Hall for Lady Bridgerton's Heart and Flowers Ball. And there are certain flowers and hearts, though the latter aren't always beating in the right direction. We have not one, but two surprise proposals leading to what will surely be bright futures and one relationship that hasn't quite been left in the past. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as at Bridgerton Pod and Instagram as at WWDDPod. And we'd love for you to tweet us using the hashtag WWDDPod. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Adele. And tonight, for the very first time, we're very excited to welcome our first special guest host. Special Hi. guest host, can you please introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Patrick Linton. I am an author and a journalist. Uh, I am currently the Deputy Arts and Culture Editor at The Conversation, and I write all over the place, and I love, 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 love romance, so I'm very excited to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you. We are. Just a little admin note, because I know that normally we go through our episodes chronologically, scene by scene, but this episode, it was nearly impossible to actually manage because every scene seems to last for about a minute and it just pops back and forth. So tonight we're going to try something a little bit different and go through the different storylines and see how that works. And hopefully it means that we'll actually be able to have a proper conversation about our characters and all of the shenanigans that they get up to. without having to bounce back and forth between all of the different locations and conversations and shenanigans that happened all the way through. So for context, we've had the Sharmas in the country at Aubrey Hall with the Bridgertons for a few days for the families to get to know each other. There's been some disappointments. And now everybody from the ton is descending on Aubrey Hall for a country visit. They're all going to come hang out at the Bridgerton house. And there's going to be this hearts and flowers ball, which Lady Whistletown describes as the invitation for the season, the, the one place that everybody wants to be. So that's the backdrop to our episode. Did the hearts and flowers ball happen last season? I think we're just going to gloss over that okay, part. Okay, moving forward. I think we're just- <laughs> There's a lot of balls every season. Yeah. It's very difficult to work out which one to which. I do remember the blue balls one from last year, but not, not the hearts and flower one. So let's talk first about Edwina. So Edwina obviously expected a proposal. Anthony like really dropped the ball on that one. So she's obviously feeling very insecure and she's decided that what she really needs is for Kate to get to know Anthony and for the two of them to, to form a relationship so that Anthony feels comfortable proposing to Edwina and not worried about getting in the middle of this sisterly relationship, which of course, as viewers, is an amazing example of dramatic irony where we know exactly why Kate and Anthony should not spend more time getting to know each other. But of course, our poor, naive Edwina is 
really on board with just shoving them into situations. She was so close. She's actually read the situation on one level correctly and then completely wrong on another level, <laughs> reflecting her lack of like experience in life and her youth and how sheltered she's been. But And she's definitely identified strong emotion. <laughs> it's just, uh, is it hate? Not particularly. Uh... Edwina is much more active in this episode, and I don't think people give her credit for it. She's actually sets a lot of boundaries. She makes a lot of requests. She doesn't get bulldozed over by people in this episode, and I don't think I've really seen people credit that. <laughs> She does want her sister to okay this potential wedding that she was feeling very quite rebuffed about apparently a few days ago and then they had a little hiatus and then this episode picked up. But um Edwina is much more like the main character, not the main character, maybe like the secondary character in this episode, which I do appreciate because she starts off with nothing, really. She is trying to develop main character energy this episode. Well, I think I think that's one of the best bits about this season is that she is the diamond. She's meant to be the main character and just through sheer coincidence and force of will, even though she doesn't want it, Kate has taken that away from her. And I think it's a really lovely inversion because, you know, we had that with the last season with Daphne being the diamond and therefore the main character and and everything. I don't think uh, Edwina does anything wrong ever, really. Like, you know, she's just a, she just seems to be a nice lady. (laughs) And I think, I mean, we talked about last episode how Kate shoulders so much responsibility for the Sharmas that it often overshadows the pressure that Edwina feels as well. And I think that comes out a lot more in this episode in the way that she talks about what she wants and how she wants to get it and why, why she can't fail. Because I think Kate keeps trying to provide her with some comfort by saying, you know, you're going to have lots of suitors back in Mayfair. This is not that big a deal. But Edwina, for all that she's incredibly naive, at the same time recognizes that if she does not succeed in getting a proposal from Antony, all of the other suitors are going to fade into the wallpaper because you know, Anthony being so influential and the Bridgertons being so powerful, if they don't go forward with this alliance between the two families, then the other suitors are going to immediately question the value of having Edwina as their potential partner as well. So I think that she is very naive. I think that she also feels a lot of pressure and, you know, and she is starting to show some more intelligence and also some more authority in her life as well. I do want to raise two things about Edwina in this episode. We're going to have to, I think, skip to the end a little bit, which is when Anthony gives his surprise proposal. But first, in her conversation with Kate, she says, he's the one that I want. And then she says, his family, this home, the life that he offers me. And I thought that was incredibly pragmatic particularly because so much of her conversation is wrapped up in romance. And then, do you remember what she says when Anthony proposes? Oh, I wrote this down. Give me a second. I shall be your Viscountess. I shall be your Viscountess. Yeah, not yes, you know, I love you. Yes, whatever. Like, yes, I shall be your Viscountess. So I don't think that we could discount Edwina's practicality as well, even though she talks so much of love. I mean, and we've got to be real, about that time, most of the guys you would be forcibly married to, if not all, would have been terrible human beings. (laughs) So, I mean, not only has she got one that's young, 
good looking and hasn't got bad breath, presumably, but he's also got a good family, seems to like his family. And, and, and so, like, I mean, this is the gold mine. And he listens it's- to her. I mean, I mean, that's even the gold mine these days. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't read, but, I mean, if you've ever been on any online dating things, you know that's not a big one. (laughs) One of the things that I really like about this season is actually discussions about the practicality of marriage or, like, the formula and the end result. And, like, and we had quite a few of those conversations um, in this episode being like, well, what is the point of a marriage? And at one point, Anthony says, isn't it to get to know my bride-to-be? And, you know, like... So the odds between the very flowery romantic language that is often used and then the practicality of like families and money and everything is a really beautiful juxtaposition. Um, And I like that we get to see Edwina is, even though she is in some ways very caught up in the romance and the glamour of it all, is still thinking practically about it. Mm, and absolutely. she's a superhero of her family right now. Like, like you've also got to think, take, like she's just saved her family. In that moment, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that segues really nicely into one of the more minor storylines of the episode, which is Eloise. And I think that the screenwriters have actually set up a nice juxtaposition between Edwina, who is obviously very romantic and looking for love and actively looking for a relationship. And doesn't know who she is. Well, and Eloise, who is sort of being dragged into the marriage mark very much against her will and finding her interests elsewhere because they, there is that scene in the middle where all of the young ladies are talking and they're talking about the matches that their mamas are setting up for them. And as you said, Adele, Anthony comes out real well against the other potential suitors of the season. Yeah. But we have Eloise there who's reading radical feminist literature and also has a family that would support her not marrying if she wanted to, so she could say no. Like, <laughs> like the privilege that is starting from that young woman's lips. Oh, Eloise. Eloise's body language in this episode feels like it's largely a right angle. It's too much. <laughs> I really love the curtsy that she does every single time she has to curtsy, and it's almost as if she curtsies on a diagonal line as opposed to any kind of actual you know leaning into convention or anything like that but so we don't have a big scene with Eloise in this episode but we have so we have the episode where she's clearly being juxtaposed with all of the other young ladies but then we have that quite emotional scene with her at the ball when her mum has brought her a suitor that supposedly shares her rebellious spirit only his rebellion is spiking the punch and I don't know. I mean, would we call him rebellious? He's a little bit worried about everybody looking at him. So I'm not entirely sure that rebellious is exactly the adjective we'd use to describe him. And then, of course, there's that heartbreaking scene where she leaves him in the middle of the dance floor and her mom tries to stop her. And she says, I'm really sorry. I'm a disappointment to you. I, you know, just let me go to bed so that I stop disappointing you. We talked last episode about how Violet failed Anthony as a parent by putting him in a situation where he had to deal with all the responsibility too soon. But I think this is another example of how Violet might be set up as a really good parent, but even good parents don't necessarily do the right thing by all of their children all of the time. Her intentions was bang on though, like going to find someone not conventional for Eloise. She's going to have to get married anyway, like... 
yes, it's very managing, but like she tried. <laughs> I mean, no one likes to be told to smile from the sidelines, but um, you know, Violet doing that, you know, she's dealt with Daphne. <laughs> She's going to get Eloise out of the way. But, um, you know, Francesca's nowhere to be seen. So, I mean, it felt like it kind of came out of nowhere, though. It feels like they haven't seeded some of that stuff enough with Eloise. They've just gone into the super dramatic, clumsy kind of body language stuff and going into the rebellious reading. But we really haven't seemingly dealt with any of the vulnerability of a lot of that until this moment. And I do believe there was a conversation with between Penn and Eloise about Eloise getting opportunities to dance and Penn would love that. And she, again, did that in front of Penn, which is kind of a dick move. I think Eloise is so self-focused that she doesn't really see anything of what's happening around her. And she spends so much time as a character being very forthright and maintaining her, I guess, her views and her beliefs about the world and expends so much energy that that's really anyone sort of sees of her. So I I quite liked the toll that it takes, you know, because it's so easy to typecast rebellious characters as purely being the sum of their views. And even though she is like clearly, especially when it comes to Penn, quite oblivious to like, you know, how her views come across, she does understand that she is different and a burden in some ways to her family. And I like that we got to see it. I hope we get to explore it more in later seasons as well. In some respects, it feels like Penn and Eloise are talking at each other instead of to each other. <laughs> We're not really seeing that connection. They're really out of sync with each other. So, mate, you know, I think uh, Eloise's disappointment thing is probably an amalgamation of lots of things she's feeling at the moment, but covering it with a hell of a lot of bravado. I would have told him to shut up and let me count as well, honestly. <laughs> that looked hard. I think she provides a, like, a really good foil for both Edwina and Penelope in different ways because she's at the very beginning of her self-awareness journey. She's really not at all conscious of the level of privilege that she carries as somebody who has the Bridgerton name, as somebody who is conventionally attractive at that time, as somebody who has a lot of wealth behind her. And the freedom that that provides for her to be rebellious in a way that Penelope and Edwina, as our other two young women in the show, don't share that same level of privilege. And we see it come out with Edwina in the way that Edwina must marry and is quite cognizant of the fact that the hopes of her family rest on her shoulders and her making a good match, the pressure there. And then, of course, Penelope, who on the show is understood to not be attractive, regardless of what the viewers see when they look at her and the way that her family is a little bit ridiculous. And therefore, she doesn't have the space to explore unconventionality because they already have all these strikes against them. and They don't they don't get to add rebellion to that laundry list of ways that they can be mocked or belittled. Yeah, and it's also a really good continuation of the conversation that we're having with Marina, you know, Mm. who we saw as someone who was essentially rescued from a moment of rebellion, you know, call it what it is, basically a step away from traditions and uh, the things that you are allowed to do. And so she had to adhere to 
marriage and family and all those things in order to save herself and her children, you know? So it's good to sort of be able to juxtapose those two situations together. And actually the conversation that Marina has with Colin is very much about like stripping the glamour from ideas of rebellion uh, and going back to reality. Let's talk about Marina and Colin now, because that's another major storyline that happens. We were just talking about how selfish maybe Eloise comes across. Colin didn't even go to the bloody ball. (laughs) He just like moped in his room and no one's probably calling him selfish. He's not thinking he's a disappointment. (laughs) Anyway, sad boy. Sad boy. All right. So Colin has discovered that Marina lives quite close by. And for reasons that I never think are really entirely clear, gets it into his head that he really has to go and see her. So he shows up unannounced and just sort of walks in. Marina is there and carrying one of her babies, which turns out to be one of two. So there's twins, Oliver and Amanda. And Colin is, I guess, apologizing. And then immediately saying that I forgive you, even though she hadn't offered an apology. You know that if this was done today, it would have been on Instagram with a black background and white writing and like, I'm sorry for any hurt I caused, but I don't feel like you really understood my position. I'm taking some time away to think about myself. Can you imagine what Colin's travel Instagram account would have been? Like, just boring. So boring. (laughs) Like, just lots of hashtags that were like really common. (laughs) and like just like the view i think that marina really nailed it in that colin is motivated by like perhaps something that he genuinely felt but more likely something that he has built into a story of love and betrayal and all these things that didn't actually really exist but in the time that it's sort of taken since then he has built up into something and she's really like even in a patronizing sense, just like, hey, sweet of you, but grow up a bit, you know? He deserved that tone. Yes. He's the, he just turns up and then he doesn't leave when it's the right time to leave. He is the, the house guest that is still at your house at four o'clock in the morning and you're all just like tapping your watch, looking at them with the door open going like, time to go now. I don't think that we can blame that entirely on Colin. I mean, because when Marina was like, okay, well... Fun to see you. He did stand up and start. Oh, we all have a dense partner who would (laughs) say the nice thing. Come on, no. No, but it was um it's Philip's fault because Philip comes in and he's like, Hey, Greece, amazing. Let's talk about trees. I've actually written in my notes botany bros. So the (laughs) two of them (laughs) go off. And like neither of them are listening to Marina or reading the room at all because they found each other. Finally, the two most boring people. Well, no one listens to Philip, clearly. (laughs) Except Colin. Well, I mean, Marina finds both of them boring, which, I mean, accurate. Yeah. I like olives, but I don't necessarily need to go in depth on their growth cycle. It shows that Colin and Marina had nothing in common. There was nothing there to begin with, as Patrick said. Like, it's just he's built up this, like, whole mythology of his life's trajectory. He wanted to close the chapter because he's probably going to be a writer. That's why he was kind of rushing the apology and then saying, I'll take your forgiveness. Like, dude, it wasn't offered. So he's gotten so far ahead and she's catching up and just gone, yeah, nah. Yeah, exactly. 
there's there's no there's no foundation to any of the kind of beliefs he had. I, I reckon they probably were attracted to each other and you know in the last season. But it's one of those things where attraction is the spark. And then if you don't get to actually extend that attraction and, and do something with it, it can so often turn into this kind of hypothetical what could have been romance, which is so powerful. I mean, I remember for a really long time when I was in my early 20s, there was like someone who like an, a thing almost happened with for a couple of years. It was like, oh, God, that could have been the one, you know, and then I and then I ran into him years later and it was just like, oh, God, I hate this guy. <laughs> Well, I think it's another really good example of how the women in this show are so much more pragmatic and practical than the men. The men have the ability to go off in dreamlands and create these romantic fantasies. And the women are like, we are living in the world. We have things that we need to do. And Maureen is like, he's good to me. He's good to the kids. I'm leading a comfortable life. Like, there are worse things that could have happened here. I am okay Fuck off with your forgiveness. I love that he said he was going to go up and check on the babies. He didn't say check up on the children. And I was like, that man's invested. And God, I hope they do a whole rewrite on Philip for the show. But yeah, look, I'm feeling a little bit of empathy towards Philip. (laughs) He's also trapped in a situation of his not not of his making. Um, I mean, he's he's incredibly honorable. He's very handsome. I feel like Marina, you know, she's okay. She landed on her feet. I don't think they share a bedroom. <laughs> no, no. And, it, you know, and it's not too bad to have a partner who just has a very strong interest in something, you know. I feel like I'm that person. <laughs> He's interested in flowers. There are worse things that he could be interested in. It could be a train set in the basement. Like, I feel like flowers is, are pretty good. <laughs> All right. So we see Philip. We get to spend some time with him. He and Colin take their botany bros all through dinner. Marina nearly falls asleep. And then Philip, who not only is honorable and also very handsome, also reads the room a little bit better and is like, so I'm just going to go away and let the two of you sort out whatever it is that you need to sort out without me here. See ya. Bye. And heads off. Did Colin want to save her and whisk her off or something? Do you think that might have been part of the plan? I think maybe, like, it feels to me like he kind of hoped that he would find her very unhappy and he would have to kind of continue or at least prove that there is something deeper at heart here. So he has to save her or tell her that he forgives her. And like, you know, I think he really wanted an idea that this was important rather than him being fleeced a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right because Colin's so romantic. He must, I think he built it up into his head as something. And then to find her fine pushes back against all of these romantic notions that he'd built in his head and, Like, literally, she's fine and I think more importantly doesn't need anything from him. And doesn't want anything from him. Actually, the one thing you do is look at Penn. Yeah, I mean, she tries to do Penny like a real solid in this conversation. Do you think she went, oh, I've been a bit harsh. I need to throw him a bone. No, I think it was her being really practical again in that we need to nip this kind of weird obsession you've got in the bud. We don't need to talk about this anymore. You know, go be obsessed with Penelope, the person who is right for you and is waiting for you to notice her. Look in that direction because this direction isn't going anywhere. 
And Penelope also holds him aloft as like on a pedestal as well. So they can do that to each other. And just leave Marina alone, basically, with her kids and her husband and he can have his flowers and everything's fine. All right, well, we're talking about Penny Penny anyway. Let's let's go talk about the Featheringtons because oh, the Featheringtons do a lot this episode. So off they head to Aubrey Hall for the Hearts of Flowers ball. And Lady Featherington has hit upon the notion that Prudence should marry Cousin Jack. And she's struggling, I think, because for all that she is an intelligent and scheming woman, she has not brought up intelligent scheming daughters so much. (laughs) Well, one she has. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but it's not the right one. It's the one that she overlooks. But she doesn't know. She also doesn't. They're so good at scheming. She doesn't know they're good at it. <laughs> but then they're playing a game of, I can't remember what old fashioned bowling is called, like skills or something. Oh. I don't know. Anyway, so they're playing that and Prudence says just offhand, oh, well, people get trapped into marriage all the time. And then you see uh-huh. <laughs> the light go on. <laughs> And then, of course, we go to the ball. Portia lures Jack into the orangery. She sends Prudence to the orangery first. And Prudence is like, yeah, excellent idea. I'm hungry. I'm going to go eat an orange. <laughs> I love how easy it was. Like, it was just like, it's like, yeah, look, go eat an orange. <laughs> the actress's commitment to being vacant and petty and self-involved is a thing too. That yeah, so good. <laughs> really enjoy her. She's very fun. Yeah. And then Portia sends Jack to the orangery with a oh my god, there is a business opportunity or something. And Jack's like, yeah, seems legit. <laughs> Off I go to the orangery as well. My question is, how do the both of you think Portia managed to round up? literally 15 other people to also go to the orangery afterwards. Well, she was saying, oh, we must go and all smell the orangery. It was beautiful. Um, You know, I I think she just bullied them, really. (laughs) She's quite managing. I know, but like, really? Like, oh, it smells really good in here. Let's all go. And everyone's like, yeah, absolutely. We're just going to go smell some oranges. Well, I mean, no shade on the Bridgertons, but, like, good Lord, that ball looked boring. Like, a lot of old-timey games and not a lot else going on. I was just like, yeah, I'd probably go to the Orangery, you know? (laughs) Just give me something to do. Also, like, so good having an Orangery in the plot because I know that from reading lots of historical romance, but I'm assuming lots of contemporary (laughs) watchers would not know what that was, so kind of weird that they had them because it was like a big status thing but they get a lot of screen time for not a lot of stuff right again do you want to explain <laughs> what an orangery is really quickly in case there's people who don't know is it not like an orange grove inside basically yeah it's like a greenhouse for yeah. fruit trees right look it's true that not a lot happens except that one very important thing for the family does happen actually two important things first of all this massive group of people who are like, yes, definitely going to go smell oranges, show <laughs> up and they're Prudence and Jack just hanging out, talking to each other. There was no vibe. There was like, it was a devoid of vibe. Like I love that Porsche had to work even harder to say they were having an assignation because there was no vibe. 
Because they are, what, fourth cousins? Look, in Regency England, fourth cousins are practically strangers. It's fine. I I think what I did like about that was when Prudence realised what had happened quite a few beats later (laughs) (laughs) and got really, really happy about it. (laughs) That timing was magnificent. But I think on the other side of that is the fact that Penn took the time to ask Prudence, like he didn't force himself on you and she was actually checking up on the welfare of her sister because she wasn't in on the the master plan. I thought that was sweet. But she was also very self-centred as well because she's like, it could ruin our family. I'm like, Penn, love, you did that to the family last season (laughs) because the same thing kind of (laughs) happened. And you reported on it and you're telling your sister if this is reported on Whistledown reports on this this season, like our family screwed. I'm like, you just did this to someone else. And I think that was deliberate because obviously there's a little bit about Penn's guilt at the end of this episode um, with her conversation with Colin. That was different, Adele, because that was when Colin was involved and Penelope couldn't have that. This is different. I'm sure you understand. (laughs) Like... Penn's face in this episode is so mean a lot of the time. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, I mean, she was really concerned about Colin going to Marina's. So I guess it is good that there was a conversation with his sister. Like, you good? I guess that means they keep the house. But as uh, Portia finds out, that marriage isn't worth shit because mm. he does not have any money. Yeah, well, this is the second important thing that happens. So first they get compromised into marriage and Jack is like, really, Portia? Like, really? Is this really happening? And Prudence is all like, yeah! But then Jack comes to Portia and is like, friend, don't scam a scammer. You have just fully screwed us over. Portia feels like someone who is really crafty and probably watches a lot of Survivor and feels like they'd absolutely kill Survivor, but their read of the game would always be a little bit off. I think she thinks she's the smartest person in the room and has been one of the smartest people in the room for a very long time that when somebody else comes in, she just doesn't recognize, like game did not recognize game. Well, she didn't have all the bits of information. I be- I mean, she was pretty crafty. She made sure the cowpers were with her on busting Prudence and Jack. So, like, with the information she had at hand, she had a good plan. Mm. And she knew she couldn't warn Prudence because Prudence would ruin it. Yeah, true. I think she's. I think the problem is that she's reactionary. A true schemer would be like, great, good idea, let's set this up properly and work it through. Whereas, like, she was like, oh, this thought has just come to me. Now I'm going to do it. I, I respect the hustle, but also, like, it, it bit you. Yeah. We also have Penn and Colin speaking the day after the ball because he came back late and went to his room and had a bit of a moat. We see that Penn finds out that Marina is doing well and that her actions from the, the previous season didn't completely skittle her life, although Colin does say Marina doesn't seem happy, and, and wondering about what would have happened if Whistledown hadn't reported on everything. Yeah. So I think Penn had a second of feeling okay about what she had done and getting off the hook, like on an ethical or maybe emotional level, but then went straight back on it. Do we think that Colin moped just that tiny little bit more because Benedict used up all of his opium last episode. I would say so, yeah. 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 
Like, really, shouldn't a Colin have been in the orange ring like, getting high in the corner or something? <laughs> I feel like I feel like Benedict is the uh, is the family stoner, so Colin's got to find something else. Well, Colin doesn't have anything. He needs a personality. Let's go. <laughs> He's getting there. He just needs to be hurt a little bit more. <laughs> so there's not really much more for Colin is outside of being handed his ass and making friends with uh, Philip. Uh, Penelope and Eloise fractured. The Featheringtons have got a house but no money. And I guess that leaves us with the Bridgertons and the Sharmas. So I think there's two separate things that we need to talk about when we talk about the British and the Sharmas. The first is Daphne's meddling. And then the second, of course, is Kate and Anthony together. But let's talk about Daphne first, who got married like literally three seconds ago and has really taken to like the meddling mama aspect of a married woman and is just jumping in there with both feet and both hands. Like Violet was so impressed by her lilac suggestion. I'm like, Violet, wait until you meet Philip. He's going to be your favourite son-in-law. <laughs> but the Sharmas have been at Aubrey Hall at minimum three days because there seems to be like a couple of days that have happened between the bee sting and, and the ball. And Daphne's only now like, I need to get to know Edwina. I'm like, you've had five days and there's no internet. Like, get on that, girl. I think that's because her spidey sense is tingling and she's starting to realise that Edwina is not the vibe for Anthony and he is perhaps holding some reservations or, you know, and so she's starting to be like, well, hang on, I need to find out exactly who she is so that I can either, like, set this up or see him elsewhere, you know? Yeah. I think she mentions a few nice things about Edwina being the diamond of the season and Violet's committed to the bit. And then you see like almost Violet, oh, thank God someone else has got concerns. Like I can talk to someone else about this other than Anthony who does not listen to me. But they're both the matriarchs now. I'm like, yeah, like Daphne, like you're 21. (laughs) Where's your husband, Daphne? She's got that like real, I'm happily coupled up and now I need to match make all of my friends vibe, which is frankly just irritating. So I'm kind of on Anthony's side about not wanting to listen to her, even though everything that she says is actually quite good advice. Like she said, like, um, I think the line is, I fear I hardly know the lady my brother is marrying. And that's true because Edwina hardly knows herself. She's trying to be perfect, which is no one. Like it's it's a concept. It's not a personality. So like good luck working out who Edwina is. She's not there with herself either. Well, it's interesting because Violet answers that with, I think that's the way that Anthony wants it. Yeah. Which A, Yes, of course, that's the way Anthony wants it. And also he told you that directly. So it's less of I think and more of he told me that that's the way that he wants it. Mm -hmm. But still not sort of having that recognition of I think there's a really deep lack of understanding of who Anthony is and, and the reasons why he's choosing to do the things that he is choosing to do. Like, I think on a surface level, Violet is beginning to understand But they're both so invested in him marrying the right person without ever wanting to understand why it is that he might not want to be involved with somebody. And also, it's a little counterintuitive, given that the vast majority of marriages at this time would not have been 
for love. So it does sort of feel a little skewing the surface and, and less of like, we're a family that deeply cares about each other and more of a, I'm a smug married and I want everybody else to be smug married as well. I really, really agree with that because I find Anthony obviously an abrasive, annoying character. Very, very attractive, by the way. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, good Lord. What that man can do with a breath. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, but <laughs> moving past that, because I could spend probably 45 minutes just talking about how beautiful he is. But him as a character, I actually, there's a part of my personality that really, really relates to him in the sense that I detest being scrutinized and I detest being told what to do as a result of that scrutiny. I really, even if it's good natured, sometimes, especially if it's good natured, you know, I've had people who love me, give me fantastic advice. And my thought is, how dare you? I will do the opposite purely because you have made this a thing. And that sort of like spiteful, self-destructive independence is not a good part of my personality, but it is part of it. And I see that with him. I see that with his younger sister getting up in his business when he feels that he has it well and truly in control. And he's someone who has been in control with this family for a very, very long time. I would be like, please sit down, go away, you know? And then the fact that there is actually something deeper and emotionally fraught going on with Kate just would add more weight to my desire for other people to stop meddling, you know? So I really felt for him as much as it frustrated me. He's like, don't you dare perceive me? Like, don't. Mm -hmm. And also I think because he's in such fight or flight mode because the plan that he's put into place isn't going as he wants it to do. He's got all these unwanted feelings and like this desire to smell Kate at all times. Oh, it's so feral and gray. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, right. So good. And then to have his Hot. sister be like, you're doing things wrong. Like it's not, it's, it's not even like he's capable of listening at this point in time. He's been running on <laughs> adrenaline for so long. He doesn't know how to stop going forward because he's never had the opportunity to not. Yeah. And that feeling of being unmoored and insecure is exactly the kind of thing that would lead me to be like, right, I need to create order. I need to create a sense of momentum. I need to get this under my control again. And that's why I would absolutely prematurely declare engagement towards someone, although I've skipped ahead, you know? Yeah. Ugh. Him being described by Edwina as even tempered is hilarious considering this episode. Edwina's being a tiny little bit forward in this scene. Like she's like, my perfect match is your brother, even <laughs> though he hasn't declared himself. And also like, I bring out the best in him, don't you think? And his sister's but, but like... that was a great line because if you think about last episode, the last thing his dead dad said to him was going to love the worst of them. Mm. So, like, she's doing only... She's not, like... I just thought that was really smart. She's just like, I bring out the best in him and, like, yeah, The best is easy. It's the worst that's, like, super freaking hard. 
So, yeah, I think she's trying to manifest <laughs> in what she's saying. She's just like, if I, I keep going forward, keep saying positive stuff, it's going to happen. I'm a lucky girl. Stuff just happens to me. That's great. Oh, I, I didn't get the TikTok manifestation right. But, yes, you know, like, well, maybe she's trying to get, like, Daphne on side and that's what she thinks Daphne wants to hear. But Danbury and Mary liked it. They approved. Yeah, I think, actually, that's a really interesting observation because Anthony and Edwina are sort of on parallel paths of, we just need to keep moving forward. We're just moving forward. Everything's moving forward. Aren't we moving forward in the right direction right now? Yeah, and it also goes back to that what we are talking about before with the whole functionality of marriage, you know? Is there some sort of functionality inherent in the system where two people are meant to bring out the best in one another? Or is there something truer and more powerful with the Kate and Anthony's uh, connection where it's two people of similar temperament who are kind of impressed and obsessed and annoyed with each other, you know, like what's better? Is, is there one that's better? I mean, the show makes the case for one, but you know, I'm not sure in general. Well, that's what Daphne says, right? She's like, we're Bridgertons. Don't we need somebody to challenge us? Mm. But that he needs someone with similarities which is different than someone who brings out the best in him. And and maybe I feel like the similarities and the challenge bit is recognising Anthony has a lot of shit that he hasn't dealt with that they can't even conceive of. And mm. he needs someone who is like that, that can he can actually have a safe harbour with, potentially, if Daphne thinks that deeply. But I mean, I don't disagree that Edwina brings out the best in Anthony, but that's only because Anthony doesn't care. So yeah. harsh, but so true. <laughs> Yeah, and also, and also, like for the rest of the family, when they see him being the good host and the good son, and being polite and talking to her and squiring her around, and they're being a perfect couple, that is one of the manifestations of how they would like him to be, and they see that as being a type of the best of him. But it, as we know, that is very much an act, and I think what we probably would like is if he is that caring and that doting and that invested for his own reasons rather than playing the role. Well, last season he was late to a lot of stuff or really just not not interested or distracted. So I think, yeah, I think you bang on there, Patrick. Mm. We've already started, but let's officially start talking about the Kate plotline and particularly the Kate and Anthony plotline because there's so much really good breathing that happens in this episode. Yep. Yes. Right off the bat, I have to talk about how beautiful Kate looked in this entire episode. Uh, And very much in comparison to like Edwina, obviously beautiful, but she looked, I guess, slightly more insipid, you know, like she was always in kind of baby blues and lavenders. Whereas Kate at one point was wearing a tiara and this pink blush with like climbing flowers gown that was just absolutely stunning and and vibrant and showed what we're meant to see about her all of her vibrancy i think you know oh i i was obsessed and she was wearing bridgerton blue yes. she was we had this ongoing theory about the bridgerton coloring because for the rest of the episode, she's in those blues. She's in teal for the hunt. But when she enters the Hearts and Flowers Ball, she's in that beautiful pink gown, just like all the other Sharmas. She's like, okay, you know what? I am a Sharma. I am not playing around with this anymore. We are presenting United Front. We are behind Edwina. 
I'm going to wear that pink dress because I am not important anymore. Like I don't have any other space except here in my family. Can we go back to the hunt for a second? Yeah. Can we go to the conversation before the hunt? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Because Edwina has this idea, right? Where she's like, you need to go spend time with Anthony. And Kate's like, dreadful idea. And Daphne's like, intriguing idea. And Edwina's like, nope, this is my idea. This is what we're going for. Yeah, and I think it's great to see um, Edwina, like, steamroll him a bit, actually. Like, the Sharmas do have a bit in common. Um, But what I did love was when Kate sat down, it's like his whole presence changed, which is a great choice by Jonathan Bailey. Like he he looked happier like immediately by her being in his presence. And then Edwina brings up the bee sting and there's this beautiful line reading of ah uh, and ah. Uh, like it's just, <laughs> I don't even know how to talk about it. It's so well done. You see this whole conversation happening with just a sound basically. And I think, ah. Uh, He's so good. What he can do with his, they were doing with their eyes alone was everything because she wasn't vulnerable. She was just very present because she knew he'd really freaked out. Like, so he needed the extra reassurance that she was well, whilst also not trying to take up the Edwina space. Edwina's like, tell him about your bee sting. And Kate's like, I got stung. <laughs> <laughs> And that so and then yeah, she's not going on the hunt, she's not going on the hunt, she's not going on the hunt. Anthony's like, cause he can't hunt. And then okay, now she's going on the hunt. Competition fuels so much of their attraction and like forwards the momentum of the plot as well. It's just like, oh great, you know, you can't you guys can't help yourself, and that's the best <laughs> best bit about it. Two things that I find really, really funny about the hunt in general. And then we can talk about the smelling scene, which is not funny at all. That's completely different feeling. So first of all, we have the poor maid who I think has (laughs) never been on a horse in her life. And the second thing is that Kate is under the impression that when gentlemen go hunting, they're going hunting. When really what they're doing is going back to their clubhouse and drinking a lot and maybe shooting their guns in the air but that's very secondary to everything else that is happening in the hunt and i love how she's just like well i'm gonna go and kill this deer (laughs) on my own (laughs) you guys are all useless i know how to hunt deer go away and then of course anthony can't leave her by herself and we get the like regency equivalent of that guy in the bar who tries to teach you how to play pool by leaning right over you (sighs) Yeah, it's just like an unfortunately sexy trope, you know, like, I don't want men teaching me anything. But if one does place their hands over mine and teaches me how to shoot something or play mini golf, I'm imagining a very erotic mini golf situation here, it's going to happen. It it unfortunately will work for me. (laughs) He was gone from the second he saw the thigh, though, right? Oh, my God. Put it away, buddy. That was that was really quite like. Uh, I mean, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, oh, like I, I was getting a little bit protective on her behalf. I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> oh, I don't think I've seen in Hollywood like the smelling of a woman that much, and mm. it's it's so hot. And I have read women talking about the representation of Indian women and, like I said, not being necessarily a 
something that's portrayed as a good thing. So to see him so turned on by her, like just her hair and her scent and everything was such a like good piece of representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, oh, Jonathan Bailey selling the hell out of it. He does. I mean, he does go a little bit into that. This is all your fault. If you weren't so tempting, then I'd be able to control myself. If only you didn't look at me, then I could have proposed to your sister. And Kate's like, not having it. Yeah. Friend, no. He also says something about, like, you don't know how to use a British gun. And I'm like, gentlemen, <laughs> like, we, we will be going right into the phallic <laughs> territory right now. You don't know what she's done in India. <laughs> He's like, it's okay. It's okay. I'll show you. <laughs> I'll show you exactly how to handle my gun. <laughs> He's so like weird about her not accepting that she she hunts sort of close the door on something that I love from the book, which is that Eloise is the best marksman in the Bridgerton family in the books. And that means if he's not accepting of that, that Eloise doesn't have that characteristic in the series. And that makes me sad. Well, to be honest, it felt more like he was inventing, like he just, he was like, whoa, 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 we should not be spending time together. And, uh, yeah, you know, more, more than anything, because it didn't feel like he was like, women can't hunt. It felt like he was trying to invent excuses, but she bridled anyway. But I may be being too kind to him. <laughs> he did point out that women can shoot like a still target That's or right. whatever. Yeah. yeah, but that, you know, in a hunt, things are a bit different. And yeah, I mean, by this point in their story, they really should know better. Like, that he, this is a cell phone on his part to suggest that there was anything she couldn't do. Yeah. But that's the, you know, that's the thing. That's the attraction, <laughs> you know, like every time she rises and exceeds expectations, he's just like, Clearly, she is the most amazing woman in the world. Um, mm. Yeah, which I like. I like how it's always her shocking and surprising him, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that plays out really well, like, a little bit later on, because, I mean, we have this amazing hunting scene, which is very much them relating to each other on a physical level. You know, they're out doing something, getting some exercise together. They're very much in their bodies. And then later on that night during the thunderstorm they're both disturbed by the storm neither of them can sleep they both end up in the library and even though that scene should be the more overtly sexual because they're both underdressed you know it's the middle of the night there's that pathetic fallacy of a thunderstorm and all of the lightning instead we get a connection on a more emotional and personal level when they bond about both being part of the dead dads club and how that sort of affected their lives going forward, which I thought was a a neat inverse of what you might expect. Yeah. I liked that as well. We could just have a very physical attraction between the two of them. They're both stunning, but it is the fact that they challenge and also support each other in ways that no one else can do. And that ability to recognize the emotional vulnerability underneath two very prickly protected people does bring that kind of like soulmate, the right person vibe to it. And I think they understand each other in a way that nobody else in the world could possibly understand. Like when he says, 
my dad was killed by a bee sting and her like she knows immediately you can see from her face you can see from her reaction everything falls into place but also she understands the devastation behind that and when she talks about you know how her dad used to read to her during storms and help her calm down you know he can see how she misses that comfort and stability in her life as well because he misses it too like that bond that is created there moves them beyond the fact that they can't stop thinking about each other to a place where they understand something fundamental about each other as well. Yeah, absolutely. And she knows the pain of being stung by a bee. So (laughs) that's really important. I mean, it hurts, frankly. (laughs) Yeah, and so does love. (laughs) <laughs> right. Especially at you don't have ibuprofen to help out with that. So, you know, she's suffering a little bit. But I do think that that's like, I think it is a good metaphor for how love is depicted in this season between the two of them. It is like a bee sting. It's something that neither of them kind of want and it happens to them. And like the bee stings in this show, it is life changing. It is altering, you know, um, which I really like. So we have this midnight meeting. And then the next time that they see each other at the ball, we've talked already about Kate pink signaling that she's back on the teams of the Sharmas and, you know, back on the plan of Edwina marrying Antony. And for all that I want to give a lot of credit to Edwina for being practical and intelligent and knowing what she wants, she still (laughs) makes an elaborate error here trying to force the two of them to dance together it is a really bad choice but i guess it makes sense she doesn't know that they're attracted to each other and she just wants them to spend some time together and she knows that i think at this point she's decided that that maybe she needs kate to give the blessing so she's trying to just organize time for them to actually speak because I don't know. She's probably running out of things to do by this point. (laughs) She's hitting the bottom of the barrel of ideas that she has for how to make Antony get to the place where he is comfortable proposing. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) they're forced into it. And Antony, you know, being Antony is like, okay, well, I will do the right thing and ask her to dance. And then Kate, of course, has no real option except to say yes. And then they take to the floor to the instrumental version of Dancing on My Own. By Robin, an iconic choice. Iconic, classic, amazing song. My question is, who is dancing on their own in this song? Well, it's Edwina. Um, You know, not that she's actually dancing. She's more uh, standing. But, you know, like that song is all about watching two people who are, you know, in love and realizing that you're not the object of their affection um, and having to just sort of stand there and make the best of it. Obviously, Edwina doesn't realize that she's the Robin, but uh, yeah, she is. She doesn't. And I thought it was really, I thought it was an interesting choice that they made from in the direction of this scene where everybody who is married looks at the two of them dancing in a different way from everybody who is unmarried because everybody in that ballroom knows something is happening, but only the people who understand what is happening, understand what is happening. Everybody else is, 
you know, a little bit in the dark, and particularly Edwina, as you say, who doesn't know that she's the Robin in this situation at all. And in fact, thinks that everything is going swimmingly and according to plan. Yeah, that's interesting. I did not notice that whatsoever. And so when you say that they know something's going on, do they suspect that there's something between Anthony and Kate or just that there is like machinations occurring? Oh, I think that they understand sexual tension. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like, I think they're looking at those two people and being like, well, these two people should bang it out as soon as they possibly can. Awkward that he's courting her sister. Right, 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 right. Ugh, if only someone said something to them. <laughs> <laughs> so they dance, whatever it's all, it all happens. And then Anthony leaves the floor very quickly. And Edwina is quite worried that something has gone wrong. And, and Kate knows that something has gone wrong and decides to chase after him. And they end up once again in the library where apparently all things happen in this episode, at least. And <laughs> they do. I, ha- I was going to keep count the season and I completely forgotten to. But I think this is part three of the almost kissing but not quite nose touching thing that they do for a lot of the episodes they have this fight that Anthony is basically trying to goad Kate into saying I have feelings for you I want you but I feel like he has a language for this in a way that Kate doesn't so him trying to force her into saying something isn't ever going to work really because she doesn't necessarily know what it is that she's feeling nor have a way to express it yeah having been brought up the way that she was yeah and just that classic of unstoppable force meets immovable object you know like you're not going to get the immovable object to change their mind you know unless you're clear about what's actually happening but they're both too insecure to actually like say anything which you know I guess that's what this entire season's about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because Kate has the, you know, I hate you. And I mean, Anthony says, you know, if you don't feel anything, tell me, I'll walk away. I'm a gentleman and I'm, you know, I will. But of course, she can't. Even in that moment, she can't lie to him, much as she's lying to herself and to her sister. And then they get caught. Yes, by Daphne, so a nice little inversion of season one. And Daphne makes that point quite, I was going to say makes that point quite pointedly, but she does make the point <laughs> quite pointedly in that she and Simon are married because Antony caught them in a very similar position. And yeah. now Daphne is in a position of having caught Kate and Antony, maybe not quite as far along, but definitely a lot closer than they probably should be alone in a library as well. The only final thing that we should probably talk about really is Lady Danbury brings up the inheritance scheme. Felt like it came out of nowhere. (laughs) It did feel like it came out of nowhere because Lady Danbury was like, have you told your sister about the inheritance scheme? Have we heard about the inheritance scheme up until this point? Oh. Is it episode two? Maybe. Is that when we first learn about it? Yeah, I think it's two. All right. But obviously Lady Danbury and Kate are having two different conversations because Lady Danbury just keeps telling Kate to tell her sister how she feels, how you feel. And (laughs) Kate, of course, is just not picking up on it. Like at times I'm like, is she wanting Kate to be more self-aware or is she pointing out that Kate's 
to blame. Like I, I think I've read it differently every time I've watched the scene. I mean, maybe a mark of a great actress. <laughs> I was under the impression that Lady Danbury was saying to Kate, tell her how you feel about Antony, tell her about the inheritance scheme, like let her in because the path that you're on right now is not one that's going to have yeah. a happy resolution for anybody. I think it's really hard if you've been the one in the protect mode to recognize that the person at some point might have ne- needed it, <laughs> whether they wanted to or not. Uh, I said this is the oldest child. But at some point you have to let, let go of it. And um, she hasn't decided that that's necessary yet. And Edwina's ready. But she also has only known Danbury for, what, <laughs> two weeks? So I don't know. I think I think it's some good advice, but. Well, I think the whole theme of this whole episode is everybody is giving really good advice and everybody is ignoring all of the good advice. And everyone's being a Patrick. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I know that we've already touched on it a little bit, but the very last scene of the episode, we have everybody leaving the ball. Everyone's going home. Edwina is really upset. Kate is, I don't know, being Kate. And then Anthony goes and gets the frankly hideous ring that is probably an heirloom and therefore something. But Edwina should definitely ask for another one as soon as possible. And then in like the most graceless way possible, he like throws himself on the driveway and is like, hey. It was one step removed from sweeping Kate aside. He's like, wasn't talking to you. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, also, what was Kate going to say to Edwina? Was she going to reveal the inheritance or was she going to reveal her feelings? What was she? What do you think she was going to say? I think inheritance. I think inheritance. Cause, That's like, less risky. <laughs> less risky and also because it's now a, like, or she thought it was now a, a big problem, you know? Um, yeah. But also not a good place to have a proposal or have that kind of thing revealed in the driveway of Aubrey Hall, surrounded by many, many people, including Penelope. (laughs) I mean, Penelope is always where Penelope needs to be. Yeah. I think Kate wasn't necessarily going to have the conversation there because the carriage ride was the right place to have it, right? I think what she was doing was setting herself into a position where she had to have the conversation Once she said, we have to talk. Oh, the worst way to start any sentence ever. (laughs) Well, there's no turning back from it, right? Whereas Anthony just has no excuse whatsoever for a last minute rushed, weird driveway proposal. I had no recollection of his proposal because all I can remember is like looking at Kate (laughs) going, oh. (laughs) But Edwina looks to Kate and hands her glove over. <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess they're engaged now and she's going to be a, his Viscountess. Mm. Everything has gone to plan. And no one looks happy about it except Edwina. And that's the end of this season. <laughs> <laughs> All right, do we have any what the Featheringtons? Yes. So mine actually throws back to that scene that we were just talking about with um, Lady Danbury and Kate. I love her. I love her character. I love that actress. Everything that she does is amazing. But every so often, she's clearly given like something of a stinker of a line and manages to deliver it in a way that no one realizes it makes no sense. And so my 
what the Featherington moment is when she says, careful, or you shall catch a chill. <laughs> what? Like, was she, like, I get that she was speaking metaphorically and, like, she was warning about greater things, but it was just, like, it was so broad. Like, how could anyone take a warning from that? And it was so dramatic. I just, I, I died laughing. It's almost like from the William Shatner school of <laughs> line recitation. <laughs> What's the chill, Patrick? What is the chill? <laughs> I don't know, but you shall catch it. <laughs> it's like climbing the word. <laughs> Adele, what's your what the featherington? Penelope got to wear a colour that wasn't citrus and no one talked about it, how beautiful she looked. She was wearing blush pink and she looked amazing. It suited her. It was a great colour on her and um, no one said anything. She actually makes mention in in that conversation that she has with Prudence where she's like, you're going to ruin the family. She says, this isn't like Lady Whistledown talking about her citrus dresses. And I'm like, Penelope, you're in pink right now. Pink is not a citrus color. I Mm. suppose grapefruit. She looks really beautiful in it. As beautiful as they allow her to look. Yeah. It's great. And I like how there's like, she's flexing her power a lot this season and sometimes in not particularly great ways, but like, I like, I like what that means for her as a person. Mama, there's a dress code. You <laughs> shall not citrus. Yeah. So mine actually touches on a part of the story that we didn't really talk about, which is Genevieve getting a little bit more involved in Penelope's Lady Whistledown enterprise, where she sews Penelope's pages into silks and then delivers the silks to the printing press. And then we see this beautiful box get opened. So first of all, we see our hot printing assistant, Theo, show up for the first time. But then we see this beautiful box with this beautiful red dress get opened up and then <laughs> these ink-stained fingers reach into all that silk and pull out the pages. And I'm like, wash your hands! Wash your hands! But also, shouldn't the dress box go between Penelope and Genevieve, not Genevieve and the printer? Because that's more suspicious that a dress is getting delivered to a printer. Look... I don't know, maybe printers make a lot of good money and their wives need silk dresses too. It was just a weird choice. But the point is, wash your hands before you touch all that red silk with your black inky fingers. Also, what happens to the dress? Oh, I just figured that they just ferry the dress back and forth. In a colour that Penelope would never wear? I don't know. I'm not the one who came up with the scheme. I'm, I'm, I'm digging so many, like, there's so many holes in this. <laughs> this was it's my red dress. It's a red dress. No one in the Featheringtons would wear that colour except Portia. It actually makes it more likely to get caught. Mm. Oh, my God, look at me becoming, like, Miss Scarlet. Where's the Duke? (laughs) (laughs) All right, it's time for... What would Damry do? This is where we imagine that a character from another book seeks out the sage and straightforward advice of Lady Danbury, the Dame of Directness. This episode's letter comes from Ava Chen, the protagonist from Anna Huang's Twisted Love. Dear Lady Danbury, so Alex, 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 my brother's best friend, but I can't say I really know him. Now my brother has tasked him with looking after me. Leaving aside the patriarchal bullshit, it's created a bigger problem. Because Alex doesn't do relationships, but the attraction between us is overwhelming. It's become a case of he doesn't want me, but no one else can have me. The problem is, I only want him. I know there's space for me in his heart, but he refuses to even try. 
Do I continue to press or do I just let him live his life lonely? Um, Ava, the solution here is don't offer a relationship. Bang it out. (laughs) Right? No? I agree. I agree. Win him over with your wiles. But she's caught feelings. She can't just bang it out. But downstairs has feelings too. He has one. Like, don't just like do a stealthy, this is not a relationship. Yeah. And if (laughs) they bang it out in the Orangery and everyone else catches them, then they'll have to be wed. (laughs) Because that happens now too. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, see, it's always hard with the brother's best friend because the brother's always like, don't. I made him promise when we were 12. I I would just um, corrupt him. Yeah. Bang it out. Keep banging it on and on and on. Beat him down. Literally. Yeah. Or do the real, like, very sitcom-y TV movie trope of just dating so many people and make it really obvious so he drives himself insane. Yeah. And then wants to bang it out. I was going to say, like, you've got to be like, oh, yeah, sure, if that's your decision, fine. And then not be available and then make them jealous. It's kind of like, I'm not doing this in between stuff. I deal in absolutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just like Gantney and Kate. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the relationship that made you think about this? Oh, actually, it's the best friend's brother. But yeah. Best friend's brother. Yeah. Oh, wait. Brother's best friend. Right. Brother's best friend. So. Our advice is make him see what he's missing until he can't possibly handle it anymore and then bang it out until he until he realizes that the way to his heart is through his dick. Either or, really, yeah. But, I mean, I do think getting caught sleeping together by the brother could actually make them have to, like, you have to commit now. <laughs> well, it will certainly escalate something happening. I'm not sure what... <laughs> I think all of this is probably terrible advice, but I don't know what the good advice is, honestly. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure that having your brother see you have sex is a good answer for anything. Mm. I, yeah. Rory, I don't have sex. <laughs> Virgin. Untouched. <laughs> all right. I really don't think we can come back from that. We're done. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> My brother doesn't listen to this podcast, so we're good. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for episode four. We'll be back in a fortnight with Bridgerton on Netflix season two, episode five. Plus our bonus episodes are back again this season. So make sure you subscribe for commentary, analysis, and conversations with Bridgerton adjacent experts. Thank you to our fantastic guest host, Patrick Lenton. Patrick, where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Well, I've got all the various social medias, uh, Twitter, etc. But it would be really great if people followed me on my Substack newsletter, which is called All the Heterosexual Nonsense I Was Forced to Endure, which I write with the wonderful comedian Beck Shaw. And we do all sorts of different TV and pop culture and stuff. And I have a column on it called Stupid, where I talk about all the things in pop culture that I love. So... Oh, that sounds great. And we'll make sure that all of that's in the show notes so people can sign up immediately. You can find us, Bridgerton Pod, on Facebook and Twitter at Bridgerton Pod and Instagram as at WWDDPod or send us an email at BridgertonPod at gmail.com. Our editor, Ben McKenzie of Splendid Chaps Productions. He edited our last episodes too, but we forgot to mention that. We're sorry, Ben. Thank you. 
This episode was recorded and edited on the traditional and unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Budrung people. Thank you for listening, and remember, WWDD.